Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 7, 11 through 28. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do, according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. It is uh, my pleasure and joy to be preaching the word of God to you this morning. And boy, we've got some interesting stuff to get into today. I might be meddling a little bit today. We say often around here that Christianity, one of the problems in our current society is that Christianity has been uh, divorced from the true comprehensive gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, most pastors, teachers, and churches teach a gospel that 
is only meant to get you to heaven when you die. That's basically the message. The gospel is to get you to heaven when you die. And that, we call that a truncated gospel, a very small gospel. It's not the whole gospel that Jesus Christ came to establish. Christianity is about, about far more than just getting you to heaven when you die. It has very real implications for your life, for society as a whole today. And today, we're going to answer some of these questions. Listen to these. These are pretty interesting questions in my opinion. How comprehensive is God's plan for society? Does he simply want a faithful church in the midst of a pagan culture? Or does he want that church and Christians to work for the reformation and Christianization of our culture? In other words, how Christian should we want our society to be? Should we want to legislate our Christian morality on the rest of society? Or should we simply just hope to be left alone to practice our faith in our homes and in our churches and our, not bring our faith into the public square at all? Now, these are all interesting questions that most of us, maybe many of us, have never really thought much about. But today's text addresses them all. Now listen, if you've been in church for a long time, I've been in church for a long time, I've never had a pastor preach through Ezra. I've, I've had one pastor preach through the book of Nehemiah. And all of these questions are answered in the book of Ezra. You're, I think you might be shocked by what we're going to find in the book of Ezra today. Our society is suffering because pastors and preachers and scholars have not taught on the book of Ezra. And so most Christians have no idea what the Bible teaches about these topics. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Father, uh, first off, we want to take a proper position um, philosophically, intellectually, spiritually this morning and just humble ourselves under your word. Uh, me personally, I am not all-knowing. I am a sinful man, just like every other man in this building, that I make errors in judgment and errors in things that I say. And so I need your grace to hide me behind your word this morning. I need you to think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. I need you to inspire the words that I'm going to say. And I need you to help the people that are listening today hear your words through me. I pray that anything I say that is an error, that is wrong, that they would understand that that comes from me and anything that is right, they would understand that comes from you this morning. Give your people ears to hear and be able to tell the difference this morning. Would you instruct us according to your word? Would you give us new hearts that desire to obey you in all things? Would you change us from the inside out today? And Would you push us out into our society in such a way that we make an impact in our city? We improve it for the better. Would you do all this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 1, verse 26, it's, that verse is often called the cultural mandate by theologians. What does that mean? It's God told Adam and Eve to go create culture. Before they fell into sin, they were created uniquely in his image. He was a creator God. They were created in that image. 
and they were given dominion over all creation. They were to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with their offspring, and to exercise dominion. Now, what does that mean? That means they were to take the stuff that God had created, the stuff that God had given them, and they were to develop that stuff. So receive good, good things from a creator God, and then shape those things, cultivate those things, go out into the world and build civilizations. Now, it's hard for us to imagine, but I'd like to try to, for a second here, do an, take, try to use our imagination here can you imagine with me what this world would be like now if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned? If they would have obeyed God and cultivated creation and built civilization without singing? It's hard for me to even get my mind around. What would music be like without the curse of sin? I, I mean, the only negative thing I could think of is that there would be no Country music. That's the only thing, neg- <laughs> right? It's the only negative I could see, right? What would our cities be like? What would our relationships be like without the fear of betrayal or injustice? What would we be like without what the Bible, what we what theologians call the noetic effects of the fall? The, the, the way that our mind and our thinking has been cursed, that we don't always think straight. We don't always think in line with the word of God. We get confused. Sometimes we, we, we know what God says, but we don't want to do that. We want to do our own thing. We're kind of selfish. What would we be like without those effects? What would we be able to do if we weren't inherently sinful? We weren't limited in those ways. It just blows my mind to even try to think about. I bring this up because we often miss this important implication that resulted from the fall. The fall wasn't just religious. That means it didn't just affect our relationship with God. Okay? So when the fall happened, it didn't just separate us from God. It did that. But by separating us from God, it also messed up everything else. See, All of us are inherently religious. We all still create and cultivate and build things that contribute for good or bad to our society. Now, why why is that? And all, see, think about this. We all naturally create. We write, we make, we build, we develop, we cultivate. But those things that we do have been negatively affected and influenced by the fall. Okay? So our, the fall didn't just affect our relationship with God. It also affected the stuff that we make, the stuff that we build, the stuff that we write, the stuff that we do. Why is that? Well, the stuff that we make and build and do, that's called culture. That's how you define a culture. And The word culture comes from two roots, cultivate, taking stuff and cultivating, and two, the Latin word cultus, where we get our word cult from. Now, that word cult, we know it has a religious connotation, but that religious connotation has been lost on most of us today when we think about culture. 
that all, because God made us inherently religious, all mankind are inherently religious. We're made, we all know that there is a God, right? We all know that we owe him worship. But some of us try really hard to suppress that fact. But every single person will inevitably pour their heart out towards something. They'll give their attention, their devotion, their worship towards something. Every human being is inherently religious. Therefore, our religion or our religious beliefs, they will determine how we live and what we create. So when you read Lord of the Rings or you read the Narnia series, you see some very wise, brilliant fantasy authors writing and creating worlds and stories through a distinctively Christian worldview. When you read these stories, even though both authors said they were trying not to make an allegory, they didn't want to make an allegory, they couldn't help but do it. See, they can't help but let their ideas of good and bad, fear and courage, sin and redemption infiltrate the stories. They realize through their Christian worldview, this is the way the world is. This is the way God and reality works. So when they're writing a story, even a fantasy story, it borrows from the story of God and it influences the the culture that they create. Why? Because religion shapes the way they see the world and it changes the way they write or create culture. Now, a famous theologian, Cornelius Van Til, said that culture, things we create, is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. It is our beliefs about God, about life, about reality, applied to the real stuff of life. So, if you visit Saudi Arabia, you will experience Islamic culture specifically manifest by its laws and its education and its customs and its worship. The religion of Islam creates a certain type of culture. If you go to China, you experience the culture created by the Chinese Communist Party, which is officially atheistic. Atheism produces a certain kind of culture. It doesn't matter that they, don't, they, they claim to not be religion, religious. Atheism is its own religion. If there is no God, there is nothing above the state. So the Communist Party is God. Therefore, the state is God. This is why China has no problem committing genocide on its Uyghur population forcibly sterilizing its people and being the world's largest and most intrusive surveillance state. There is no one above the state that holds them in check. So the state, therefore, is God. Here's the point. A nation's religion is upstream from its culture. This is universally true. Religion influences the type of culture and civilization that is being created. This is because human beings are all religious and when we create things, we do that through a certain religious worldview. This is why you cannot simply export Republican democracy from America and try to overlay it onto an Islamic society like Afghanistan. 
our form of democracy has only grown in the soil that had been Christianized first. Religion is upstream from culture and upstream from politics. This reality has been uniquely recognized by nearly every single empire and nation state in the history of the world. From ancient Egypt to Babylon to Persia to the Greco-Roman Empire and in our founding fathers as well. And yet today in the West, we have believed the lie that you can separate religion from culture and religion from politics. What we're going to learn from Ezra today, is that when given the opportunity, Ezra chooses to build what we today would call a specifically, purposefully Christian culture in his society. The only way to push back the influences of a pagan culture or an atheistic culture is by creating and instituting a Christian culture. You fight culture with culture. You have to build a culture to critique another culture or to, or to influence another culture. You can't just point at something and call it bad. You have to build a Christian culture that actually changes whatever culture it's in. Now, I want us to remember from last week, Ezra was a scholar and a scribe. He was chosen to be basically a secretary of state who would work between the uh, Darius, the king of Persia, and he was going to be the secretary of state that was a go-between between the king of Persia and this little new um, nation state of Jerusalem that was being rebuilt. Okay, so he's going to be, operate as the secretary of state. And when the opportunity arose, 20 years after the exiles had rebuilt the temple, Ezra was a competent scribe. He was a professional of the highest order. He knew the scriptures. He was a hardworking man. And when his opportunity arose, he stepped into this opportunity, courageously went before King, King Darius and said, listen, that little uh, outgropping of, of religious people that you've sent back to Jerusalem, they need a culture. They need politics. They need a ruler. They need to be organized. And I know exactly what they need. Send me back to do it. And it says the hand of God was on Ezra to go back and do this. Remember that from the last couple weeks. Verse six said, the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. In other words, it was God's will to rebuild this culture. They already had a functioning temple but God's goal for his people was more comprehensive than just having a temple. He wanted a certain type of culture and a certain type of government over his people. So today we get to see this amazing season in the life of God's people where a pagan king gives Ezra his blessing to rebuild his culture according to the word of God. And we even have secular sources that affirm this. We've already seen this in um, times past with the edict of Cyrus, the king of Persia that's been found. So that's where we're going. I want you to open up your Bibles, Ezra chapter seven, verse 11, and prepare to be a little surprised today. This is the copy of the letter 
that King Artaxerxes, now we believe that this is King Darius, but Artaxerxes is a throne name much like Caesar, okay? Gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord. So we see here, again, Ezra is a scholar. He's an expert in the scriptures. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king. He's an emissary here. You are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem. To make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your land. Okay, once again, Ezra is being sent as a secretary of state to quote, make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. That means Ezra was meant to have one eye on the law of God the scriptures, the Old Testament, and another eye on the people, on the culture. That he was meant to understand the word of God and understand how the word of God was meant to uniquely apply to the people there in the culture. God's called pastors to do the same thing today. We are called to exegete the text of scripture, to pull out the meaning of the text, and we're to, to exegete the, the people, to understand what do they need to hear right now. How can I apply the word of God specifically to God's people here today, okay? Keep reading, verse 15. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors had freely offered to the God of Israel. Okay, here we see something. Ezra has asked the king for something. And the king said, yes, go do that. And the first thing that he asked the king to do is to improve the right worship of God and to beautify the temple. Okay, so they had built this temple. It was kind of ghetto, right? Like the, the temple was not great. It did not compare to the temple before. It was kind of depressing because they were a poor, impoverished community. Well, King Cyrus looks at that and goes, here's some gold, here's some silver, here's some sacrifices, here's some of the wealth of my kingdom. Go and make the temple better. Go improve the right worship of God. Now let's keep reading. Verse 16. <clears throat> With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, they vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs with their grain offerings and drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you, and your brothers do with the rest of the silver and gold. You may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls for you to provide. You may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river, Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to 100 talents of gold, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So, first question we should ask is, why would a pagan king pay for all this stuff to improve the worship of God's people? Well, we know 
He says it right there in verse 23. He said, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Now, this is interesting. This king is a pagan king. He, he believed in multiple different gods. And he knew that if you tick off a god, you would incur its wrath, his wrath, right? And so he hears about the God of Israel and he knows, well, if we don't follow his ways, if we don't worship him rightly, then he might pour out his wrath upon me and his sons. It's interesting to me that this pagan king knows religion is upstream from culture and upstream from politics. If Israel's God is real, Darius wants his blessing and not his curse. Darius wants his political reign to be blessed. He wants his culture to be blessed. And so he knows if he wants those two things to be blessed, he better serve Israel's God. He better honors Israel's God. This pagan king had no illusions about God not wanting to get involved in culture or politics. He knows that to ignore God or disobey God would be to invite his wrath upon the realm of the king and his sons. Now listen, we need to see this in our day and age. This is a universal reality. Religion is upstream from culture and politics. So therefore, if you want God's blessing upon a nation, upon a people, you have to serve that God. You have to obey that God. And if, you, if your culture rejects that God and your politics reject that God, then you will be under the wrath of God. And we are clearly under the judgment of God in our society for rejecting him and his ways as God and king of the universe. So what does Darius do here? What does Ezra do? Ezra comes back to the city with four goals. He wants to accomplish four things. The first one we've already seen. He wants to improve the right worship of God. So he comes back with all this gold and silver. He's going to make the temple look better. He's also got all these sacrifices. He's going to sacrifice to the Lord their God. They're going to honor God in the temple. But this is what's interesting. Religion is not meant to be its own isolated thing. It's meant to infiltrate every aspect of society. So the right worship of God doesn't stay there. It's going to echo out into homes. It's going to echo out into the civic realm. It's going to echo out into the political realm. And that's exactly what we see here. But this is really interesting. Look at verse 24. I think this might kind of blow your mind. Maybe, maybe not. Verse 24. Here's the second thing that Darius tells him to do and Ezra does. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and other servants of this house of God. The second thing Ezra does, and Darius tells him to do, is institute a tax-exempt status for the clergy. Now, why would the government want to provide this type of incentive to the clergy, those leading the worship of God? Why would they want to provide a tax-exempt status to them? I'll tell you again, because the po politician knew that religion 
is upstream from culture and politics. In other words, if I want citizens that obey the laws of God, guess what? Legislators can't make people obey the laws of God. Judges can't make people obey the laws of God. The only one who can make people want to obey the laws of God is God himself, and that happens at the temple. That is religious. So in our religion is where we get a new heart that wants to obey God, right? Laws can't make you want to obey God. You can make every law in the history of the world and people will go, no thanks, right? And the judges can't do anything about that. We could punish wrongdoers, but we can't make people want to obey God. So Darius looks and says, I want a blessed kingdom. I want good citizens. I want just laws. In order for that to happen, I want to set aside, I want to make sure the the pastors, the preachers, the teachers, they have tax-exempt status that they receive some incentive for doing their job. See, this is interesting here. I love this because if we want to have Christian political leaders in our society and in our nation today, we must first have a Christian society who wants them. And in order to have a Christian society who wants them, we've got to have Christian leaders Christian pastors, elders, teachers, worship leaders, right? And so the government here sees that layout and they say, okay, we're gonna give them incentives. We, we, want, a, we want some blessings upon the pastors and the teachers here. That a nation's religion is its heart. It's the source of morality. That its laws can never make up for a lack of morality in its people. This is why Our second president of the United States, John Adams, said of our Constitution, quote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He knew a nation's morality and a nation's religion came before its politics. And politics can never make up for a lack of morality or a lack of religion in its people. And this is why our country, when we were writing our laws and we were founding, when we had our founding fathers, they saw this in the text of scripture and they gave tax exempt status to churches and to pastors to be a blessing. Why? Because they want a pastor to do their job. They want a blessing on the pastors and on the, on the household of God. And they know that's where the heart of a nation is changed. It's changed in the temple. It's changed in its worshiping community. And then it echoes out from there. Now, so here's Ezra talking about tax-exempt status for, for churches and for pastors. Crazy. He's about to meddle even more. The next thing he does, the third thing he does, Darius tells Ezra, go back to Jerusalem and appoint civil magistrates, that's civil rulers, and judges. Look at verses 25 through 26. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know, well, we're about to get, that's the fourth one. Those who do not know the law, the law you shall teach them. Now, here we see the king recognizes both the wisdom of Ezra and the wisdom of God found in the scriptures. He sees the scriptures 
teach about a certain type of political philosophy, and he sees that that political philosophy could lead to the just ordering of a society. And he says, I want you to take that political philosophy I see in the scriptures, and I want you to go apply it back in Jerusalem. He sees the wisdom of it. Now, notice here, this is how we would describe this. Notice here in this text, in the book of Ezra, the separation of powers. See, our founding fathers did not invent our system of government out of a vacuum. They were deeply influenced by the scriptures. Most of us don't know this. We've been lied to by all kind of our, you know, professors and teachers that have said our, our founding fathers weren't Christian and we didn't have a Christian foundation. They lied to us. Our founding fathers, one of them was Richard Henry Lee. Richard Henry Lee was president of the Continental Congress and he was given the chore to bring the team together and write the Declaration of Independence. Well, his wife grew ill, so what he did was he handed this task off to his protege, the young Tommy Jefferson. Now, Tommy Jefferson is famous for his Bible, but he's famous for his Bible for all the wrong reasons. Thomas Jefferson was a modernist. He did not believe in any uh, miracles. And so when he took the Bible, he literally, Thomas Jefferson, literally cut out every miracle of the Bible. And then he said, this is an awesome book of morals, rules, and this is how you should live your life. Okay? Now, Thomas Jefferson was a modernistic deist. Okay? A lot of people point to it. See, they weren't Christian. Hold on. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't an Orthodox Christian. We would agree that. But listen what he did. He took the Bible, cut out the miracles, and kept the rest. Guess what that means? He liked the rest. He liked the rest. He liked the morality. He liked the philosophy. He liked the political system. He liked the rest. He kept the rest. And this is what happened. His, his, so he was the protege of Richard Henry Lee. Richard Henry Lee was a Christian in a full sense of the term and, try, and was discipling Thomas Jefferson. But when he gave this task to write the Declaration of Independence to Thomas Jefferson, he gave him three books. He gave him John Locke's book on the disquisition of government. He gave him Thomas Hooker's, a scholar, Thomas Hooker's commentary on the biblical book of Judges. And he gave him the Christian pastor and theologian Samuel Rutherford's book, Lex Rex, which means the law is king. He gave him those three books, and this is what he said, quote, construct out of these a covenant lawsuit that will make the world sit up and pay attention. And guess what Tommy did? He did it, right? The Declaration of Independence was profoundly shaped by a Christian worldview, profoundly shaped by the word of God. Two out of those three books were written by Christians, competent scholars, and that deeply influenced our culture, deeply influenced our, even our political system in the, found, in the founding of our society. So here, in our text, we see a king, King Darius, this is like how we would compare our executive branch of government. Then we see civil magistrates or civil rulers. This is the legislative branch of government. And next we see judges. That is the judicial branch. What we see here is a clear separation of powers going on in the institution of this 
governance, this political system of governance with Ezra. Why? For the sake of justice and to guard against the sinfulness of man. Remember, our sinful nature has, inf- has affected all, every one of us. And so our founding fathers and Ezra and the biblical record, they don't want one person or one group of people to get too much power because that's how injustice happens. That's how all kind of tyranny happens is one section of the government or one sphere of, of, of authority. P- they, people get too much authority, too much power in creating an unjust society. Each person in this system here, is given a specific sphere of influence that they are meant to rule over. You see the executive branch, you see the legislative branch, branch, and you see the judicial branch. We've got Ezra here as a priest, as a scribe, as a secretary of state. And he is called by God to go back to Jerusalem and Israel and to appoint these civil magistrates and these judges. And they're all meant to do, function and do their job according to the word of God. Now here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says of the civil magistrate. Here's what they're for. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and the punishment of evildoers. So that's what civil magistrates are for. They're to promote the good and they're to punish evildoers. That's exactly what our text says that they were to do in ancient Israel. Now, the last thing the king tells Ezra to do is to teach everyone. So hopefully the society knows the laws of your God and they want the laws of your God, but those who don't know them, you are meant to teach them the laws of God of your God. I found this super interesting. 11 times in this chapter, the king references the law of God or the law of Moses or the scriptures or his wisdom or his standards. He says it over and over and over again. Do everything exactly how God commanded it to be done in his word. Apparently, Darius knew, even as a pagan king, if you want a just and righteous society, It begins with a just and righteous standard. Now, this is where many Christians get soft. Do you believe the laws of God should govern our nation? Do you believe the laws of God should govern our civil authority, should govern our legislative branch? Do you believe the laws of God should legislate the morality of its citizens? Many Christians get soft here. See, all of us want a just and moral society, but we are often afraid to say something as bold as we believe the word of God should govern our society. But here's the reality that we all need to see. There is no neutrality. All laws legislate morality. That's what laws do. All judges 
enforce some standard of justice. The question isn't whether we should legislate morality. Every society legislates morality. The question is, what standard do we use to legislate morality? So it's not whether we are to legislate morality. It's whose morality? Who's the standard? If it's not the Bible, if it's not God's standard, whose do we choose? Islam has an answer. You won't like it. China has an answer. You won't like it. Russia has an answer. You won't like it. Progressive secularism has an answer. I don't like it. All laws legislate morality. If it's not God's laws, it's some form of man's laws. And man's law is inherently fallen and sinful because it comes out of the sinful nature of man and not from a holy and righteous God. Listen to the way God spoke of his word and his laws when he gave it to his people before they went into the promised land. Here's, here it is in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses one through eight. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Moses says, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. Look at this right here. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Pause. You're meant to know the law of God, obey the law of God, teach others to obey the law of God, and the peoples, the surrounding nations will look in and go, look how wise they are. Look how righteous they are. Look how just that society is. Look how good that society is. That the following the laws of God, basing a society on the laws of God, the world was meant to look in and go, wow, that's justice. That's goodness. That's righteousness. Keep reading. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law of God is righteousness. If we want a righteous and just and good society, it has to be based upon his law, not man's law. God told them they were to keep his laws and statutes and do them, that the surrounding nations would literally recognize the superiority of God's law over their own law. And you know what? That's what's happening here in Ezra. We're, we're generations later, they've already been judged. They've, they disregarded the law of God. They went off into Babylonian captivity. They came back and a pagan king is recognizing the superiority of their culture and their laws and their political system and sending him back going, I want you to rebuild that nation right here. That's what, from a brief moment in time, 
right? It doesn't last long, but for a brief moment in time here, we have the recognition that God's ways are better than our ways. Look what happens. Look how, look at Ezra's response here. Verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Man, Here we see in this whole chapter that God was not content with just the building of his temple for his people to worship in, okay? God desired more than just religious reformation. That religious reformation that happened in the temple was meant to reverberate out and change families, to create Christian, so Christian worship was to reverberate out from that temple. It was to change the heart of worshipers away from selfishness towards the worship of God, to reorient them to the mission of God. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for God's kingdom. And as that worship changed them, let's just say on Saturday morning, whenever it happened, it reverberated out, it changed households. Now we have Christian mothers and fathers who are creating a distinctly Christian home. Christian culture in their home, the right worship of God in their home. As that worship reverberated out of there, those kids were sent out now to change a culture. That means they were sent out to write books, write music, legislate laws, create good culture for the glory of God. The right worship of God was meant to reverberate to households, out to the legislation and the writing of just laws, all the way out to the judge, all the way up to the king. Worship was meant to change an entire culture. That was its goal. Why? So the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. God's plan for their society was comprehensive in scope. He wanted use New Testament language now. He wanted a church that brought people into the presence of God on a weekly basis that in that worship gathering changed them into God-fearing, God-loving, God-obeying citizens set on building a distinctly Christian society for the glory of God. I do not believe our goal has changed or I do not believe God's goal for our society has changed. In fact, the coming of Jesus only reinforces this reality. In the coming of Jesus, our worship should be even more reformational. We're not going into a temple that's sacrificing bulls and goats. We're going into the presence of the living God through the body, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. 
that we're not looking at an animal to pay for our sins. Jesus Christ in his body on the cross has taken all of our sins onto the cross, paid from there, got up out of the grave, convincing us once and for all, we are forgiven. We went from sinners to saints, and I know that because Christ is resurrected, not because how I feel in the moment. Christian worship should make white-hot reformers, man. Our worship should reverberate out of these walls and change our homes and change our businesses and change our politics, change everything about our city. Jesus comes lives the life that all of us fail to live, comes as a complete sinless son of God. But instead of just setting up his kingdom on the earth in that way and demanding worship, listen, he knew. Look, religion is upstream from culture and politics. Why did Jesus not come as a new king? Religion is upstream from culture and politics. If he wants to he wants a kingdom that's not of this world and he wants a real kingdom. He's got to change the hearts of his people. How do you change the hearts of your people? You come as a different type of king, a king who takes your place, a king who takes your sin on himself and takes it into the presence of God and is judged by that judge of the universe. Why? To offer a new heart to you, to offer redemption to you, to offer salvation to you. And this Jesus who does that for you, he was resurrected three days later. He's seen by over 500 witnesses that verify this fact. Then what does he do? He is glorified. He is, he is lifted up. He is brought up into the presence of God and he takes a seat at the right hand of God saying in one sense, my work of redemption is finished. Now I'm ruling and I'm reigning over the kingdoms of men. He said it when he was, before he did that, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right now, Jesus Christ is bringing about the redemption of the world. I don't care what the news says. Jesus Christ, even anytime we get doubtful of that fact, is it really happening? There are a lot more Christians today than there were 200 years ago than there were a thousand years ago. We, 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 we lose sight of that fact because things get crazy, okay? Chaos, the weeds, the weeds and the seeds of the kingdom, they're growing together, right? So yeah, chaos is growing, but so is God's kingdom. Jesus right now is orchestrating the renewal of all things. And this is what's so fascinating to me. He's doing that through this world-encompassing message called the gospel, that he's changing all things through the resurrected Jesus Christ. But he's primarily doing that through us. But I, I, my worship's not white hot. I know. But I don't know that much about the Bible. I know. But I, I, I yell at my wife sometimes. I know. I get angry at my kids. I know. I sin. I know. I'm foolish. I know. God is using us to spread his message of renewal and redemption around the world. Jesus 
has sent us. First off, he saved us from our sins and then sent us out into the world to be his agents of reconciliation. His missionaries. He has forgiven us. He's given us new hearts. He has put his pleasure on us. He's gifted us the righteousness of Christ. We never have to doubt if God loves us. We never have to doubt if God is for us, if his favor is upon us. Jesus Christ has purchased that forever for us. We've been lavished on. He's lavished his love and favor on us. Now listen to this. Do you know this? Like Ezra. Because of Jesus, like Ezra, we can say with absolute certainty, we have the steadfast love of God. And any person that knows that, that's what we celebrate in this gathering on a Sunday morning. We have the steadfast love of God because of Jesus. Therefore, take courage. Be courageous. Be bold. Ezra says, I grabbed some of the leading men of the city. Yeah, men, we need to know this. We need to teach it to our children. We need to apply this out in the world. Take courage. Courage, the hand of the Lord, our God, is on us. That's good news. Every week we come in here to celebrate that reality and to encourage us as we go back out into our work and into our mission field. This is what we mean when we say around here, we've been saying for 11 years that we are here to make disciples of Jesus, to plant churches of Jesus, and to renew our cities for Jesus. It goes in that order. We gotta make disciples. That means we want people to experience the love of God in Jesus and be changed by him to be born again. We especially want to make disciples of our own children. We want to build Christian households that put the worship of God at the center of their lives where mom and dad are both creating a Christian culture in their homes of faith and repentance, of joy and singing and worship and feasting and celebrating and storytelling, all for the glory of God. You fight culture with culture. We're worried about the influence of the culture upon our children. Yeah, we should be, but we fight back by creating gospel culture at home. We want that worship cultural creation, to reverberate out of our Sunday gathering into Christian households and then out into the cities to build a distinctly Christian culture here in the Quad Cities. That's what we want. Be bold and say it. We want a Christian culture for the good of our city and for the glory of God. That's justice. That's righteousness. That's human flourishing. We want to take our beliefs out into the public square and write stories, make movies, create music, build businesses, teach students, legislate morality, judge justly, do everything under the authority of King Jesus who is ruling and reigning heaven and earth right now. And he's given us his blessing to do it. He's told us that he will be with us until he returns. He's given us his spirit to be with us until he returns. 
Let us take courage for the hand of the Lord is on us to work and build. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we do not deserve your hand of blessing. As we said in our profession, or I mean in our, in our confession of sin this morning, we deserve your judgment. We deserve hell, but you've given us heaven because you are a gracious God and Jesus took hell in our place. And so we offer our worship to you now and we invite you to come in and renovate our heart. Push out worldliness. Push out selfishness. Push out these false secular notions of some kind of neutral space out in the world and push in your word, push in truth, push in goodness, push in beauty, push in holiness, push in your spirit, Lord. Would you change hearts and minds of your people right now? And would you draw our eyes up to worship the God who will not be defeated? Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning in all over heaven and earth right now, he will renew all things for the glory of God. That we are on the winning side when it comes to the renewal and redemption of the world. And we put our hope and our faith in you. Would you help us remain faithful to what you've called each and every one of us to do? And now <clears throat> we, come before, we come to your table, Lord. We come to eat. We need sustenance. We need energy. We need grace. We need what you have for us to motivate us, to heal us, uh, to teach us. And so we come to your table where you said this table, we're to eat of it and to drink of it until you return again because it proclaims the Lord's death until he returns. So we eat as we're in exile here on this earth, as your kingdom has not fully come. We are here in the midst of the battle and we are eating and we are drinking and we are waiting for your return. Father, Jesus, you, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's your blood spilled for the covering of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. When we eat it, we proclaim your death until you return. And so we want to eat it in faith today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.